This Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte. Or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin' refresher with a Cupid's Choice Donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this 412th episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast, Ghost Tours for the Theater of the Mind. I'm your host, Diane. And this is Kelly. Kelly, we are going to be talking about a city that you have visited and actually done a ghost tour there. I think it was your first ghost tour ever, right? It certainly was. And that is Anchorage in Alaska. And I'm kind of bummed because I've missed twice now getting to visit there because we've had cruises canceled. So I'll probably never make it to Anchorage. Well, this is true. But it's got a lot of haunted stuff there. We're going to be talking about that on this episode. Before we get into that, we want to welcome into the Spooktacular crew, Trish. Welcome to our Facebook group. And this is what happens when we pretty much record shows back to back. We don't have a lot of people come into the crew. That is correct. But we're taking Thanksgiving off. So we hope you guys all had a very happy Thanksgiving. And now, this moment, Naughty. The moment in oddity was suggested by Chelsea Flowers. Between the Acropolis of Mycenae and the plain of Nafplio, the Mycenaean civilization built 17 bridges that earned them a spot in the Guinness Book of World Records. The most well-known is the Mycenaean Bridge of Kazarma, which dates to 1300 BC. This is the oldest preserved bridge in Europe. It is located in the village of Arcadico in Greece, and is one of the most important monuments of the civilization. The bridge features a single arch and was built from large raw limestone boulders, and there is no binder. The construction method is known as Cyclopean masonry. The bridge is completely stable and has lasted for hundreds of years due to the weight of the limestone boulders and their symmetrical placement towards the vertical axis of the bridge. The sophisticated layout of the bridge featuring curbs along with the military road network have led historians to believe that these were specifically made for chariots. This world record-breaking bridge is not only still functional, but it certainly is odd. Are you afraid of the dark? That's just silly. What you should be afraid of is the thing that watches you sleep. And now, this month in history. In the month of November on the 17th in 1869, the Suez Canal opens. 
the Ottoman governor of Egypt, Muhammad Said Pasha, came to an agreement with then-former French consul to Cairo, Ferdinand de Lesseps, in 1854 to build a canal 100 miles across the Isthmus of Suez. The construction began in 1859 under the Suez Canal Company. In the beginning, forced laborers had to dig out the canal by hand, but eventually European workers brought steam shovels and dredgers. The canal was completed four years behind schedule. And you complained because your kitchen remodel took an extra couple of months. <laughs> when it was completed, the Suez Canal connected the Mediterranean and the Red Seas. The inaugural ceremony was attended by French Empress Eugenie, wife of Napoleon III. The Suez Canal Company was formed and granted the right to operate the canal for 99 years after completion of the work. Later, control of the canal would switch hands between Britain and Egypt and faced a shutdown during hostilities between Egypt and Israel. Peace talks in 1975 reopened the Suez Canal. Today, dozens of ships navigate the canal daily, carrying more than 300 million tons of goods a year. Alaska is a land just ripe for hauntings. Darkness cloaks the land for much of the year, and thick pine forests spread across the expanse. There are legends that have filtered down through the various cultures and time periods passed around by the Inuit, the gold miners, the trappers, the explorers, or the soccer moms. Anchorage grew from a tent city to a major American city. The city has experienced much history, and this may be why several locations here are rumored to be haunted. Join us as we explore the history and hauntings of Anchorage, Alaska. And I'll go ahead and apologize now. We're going to be talking about several indigenous groups from this area, and I'm not really sure on how to say their names, so I'm sure that we will be butchering them. So we apologize now. The Alutic people were the first to live at the Cook Inlet. They arrived via large kayaks around 5,000 years ago. Several groups of Alutic followed them over the next 3,000 years. The Chagachalutic were the last of that group, and they left the area in 500 A.D., the Denina Athabascans came through the mountain passes, and they migrated throughout Alaska based on the seasons, usually wintering near trading junctions. The Atna tribe was also in the area. The first European to arrive was Captain James Cook. He was seeking the Northwest Passage and ended up in the inlet between two landmarks he would name Mount St. Augustine and Cape Douglas. He anchored his ship there and called it Anchor Point for that reason. This would eventually become Anchorage. I thought that was pretty cool that Anchorage is basically, I anchored there. Exactly. Cook went on to map the Alaskan coastline, and he named many of the areas, and they still have those names today, just like Cook Inlet. <laughs> Nothing like naming the places after yourself. This is true. But that's not uncommon for the time. No, and if I discovered a place like Alaska and mapped the coastline, I'd name it after me, too. I'd name the whole thing after me. <laughs> we just call it Diane, the land of Diane. Oh, my word. And you could call me Diane the Great, because my dad always did when I was a kid. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> he told me stories about Diane the Great. I do all these wonderful super feats and stuff. It was kind of fun. <laughs> You're like your own superhero. That's why I have such great confidence. Okay. But I can't go through walls or fly or be invisible. <laughs> Moving right along. <laughs> 
Alaska would become an American territory in 1867, when U.S. Secretary of State William H. Seward brokered a deal to purchase Alaska from Russia for $7.2 million. Many people called this Seward's folly, but he was laughing later when gold was discovered in 1888. Alaska became an organized U.S. territory in 1912. Surprisingly, the area surrounding Anchorage wasn't any good for mining because there was no significant metal minerals. I found that surprising because you just think Alaska's full of gold and silver and lead and all kinds of good ore, and Anchorage isn't. There wasn't gold in them there hills. No. (laughs) So the city actually grew from a need for the railroad. This railroad construction began in 1914. The workers built a tent city as they worked on the railroad. A couple hundred families from northern states in the continental U.S. were offered land and a chance to be a part of an agricultural community in Anchorage. Many didn't make it for long and left, but some thrived, and those farms are still around today. I like how they didn't go to people who were in the Floridian territories or down in the (laughs) southern states and said, hey, you want to come up to Alaska? They're like, let's pick some really hardy people, those Minnesotans and stuff. Yeah, you're a little bit of a wimp in the cold. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think I would have made it on an Alaskan farm. Oh, Diane, do you know how cold the grave can be? One of the businessmen in Anchorage was Simeon Asia, who was known as Bastut or Chief Ezi. He was a respected Denina Athabaskan Indian elder who was born in 1870. He was one of the last recognized chiefs of Upper Cook Inlet. Large ships in Anchorage needed to get their supplies across the water to the smaller communities of Cook Inlet, so Bastut started using a small boat to deliver those supplies. He became a rich man, but not because of that business. His son told the story that floods came to their area often, and one time a store drifted onto Fire Island. Yes, the flooding picked up a store and caused it to drift over to Fire Island. Oh, my word. (laughs) Bringing with it a safe that got buried under the sand. Bastet's wife was the daughter of a powerful medicine man, and he told Bastet to go out onto the sand with a pole and prod where he told him. Bastet did that and found the safe filled with $20 gold pieces. Bingo. (laughs) Wow, (laughs) cha-ching. He packed that gold home in several loads. He held a feast for his community after this called a potlatch. And in case people don't know what that is, it's just a big party. That's what the Inuit call a big party. It's like a potluck. Yeah. (laughs) Only with a lot of food and alcohol and all kinds of stuff. So it's not your typical church potluck. Oh, gotcha. Well, potlucks don't have to be church organized. I know, but it seems like most (laughs) of the potlucks I've been a part of were usually connected to the church. Not for you? Oh. I guess I don't do a lot of community potlucks. This is a true historical account, but there are many legends connected to the Inuit people of Anchorage. Inuit legends have been used both to entertain and to instruct. Inuit mythology embraces the belief that there are multiple worlds that are a part of our planet. Worlds exist inside the Earth, very similar to hollow Earth theories that still exist today. Worlds lie beneath the sea and in the sky. These indigenous people have shaman, or what they call angakoks, that are able to journey to these worlds in dreams and trances. Some of these places are a part of the afterlife as well. A prominent Inuit legend tells the story of the sea goddess Sedna, who is also known by the names Teliliyak, Nuliyak, and Teliliyak. This is a creation myth, and Sedna becomes the ruler of the Inuit underworld known as Adlivan. How she comes to this position is interesting. She apparently was a giant and the daughter of the creator god Anguta. Sedna is not a nice girl, and she has a pretty bad temper. She eventually attacks her parents, and so Anguta takes her out in a kayak and throws her overboard. Sedna clings to the side of the kayak, so Anguta cuts her fingers off and she sinks down to the underworld. Her fingers turn into seals and walruses. 
Inuit hunters depend on Sedna's goodwill to give them success in hunting for food. They offer broken knives, bones, and pieces of meat into the sea for her. They throw all the garbage to her. I don't know if that's really a good offering or not. (laughs) But hey, kids, here's a lesson. Don't talk back to your folks and be mean to them or they're going to take you out in a kayak and throw you overboard. And cut your fingers off. Maybe. (laughs) Good grief. Koyak is a legendary hero who is a wanderer using a kayak or dog sled to travel. He encounters bears, sea monsters, giants, spirits, and cannibals along his way. I love how they just throw the cannibals in there. (laughs) Oyak has supernatural powers that he uses to defeat these creatures. He has lived a long time and had many lives. The legend of Lumiak tells the story of a young boy who was abused and lost his sight. He seeks refuge in the sea and is befriended by a loon. The loon tells him to hold on to his back and he pulls the boy through the water. The loon instructs Lumiak to keep his eyes open and when they emerge from the water, the boy can see. There are many supernatural beings that are part of the Inuit myths as well. Scaly, human-like creatures that kidnap children and drag them into the sea are known as Oalupaluk. The Mahaha is a demon that terrorizes its victims by tickling them to death. Yeah, that's I just think pretty that's pretty well-suited name. The perfect name. I know. I was just going to say that. I'm like, first of all, it doesn't sound like a very demonic name. But then when you see what it does, it's like, oh, well, that makes kind of sense if it's tickling people. It's like, ha 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 until you're dead. The Inu Pasajik are giants who kidnap humans. And Idrat are shapeshifters that can change into animals of the Arctic. Their giveaway is their red eyes. And the Takriak suit are shadow people that are heard more often than they are seen. Along with the legends of the land are stories of hauntings. Here are some of the places that are reputedly haunted in Anchorage. So, Kelly, before we jump into those, this is the ghost tour that you took in Anchorage because there are no other ghost tours there. This is the only one. And it's a gentleman who wears a a black top hat. You're like, is it still the guy with the black top hat? I remember him having that. Yeah, I love that he's still doing it because, I mean, gosh, that was at least 10 years ago. Wow, very cool. And it only goes on, of course, during the summer. So they just wrapped up their season. I think he goes through October. Yeah, he was he was really informative. First up, we have the Oscar Anderson House. The first wood frame house in Anchorage was built in 1915 at 420 M Street. And it still stands today as a museum. And I noticed a lot of these places are on alphabetical letter named street. So I think Anchorage has a lot of streets that are that way. This was built by Anchorage resident Oscar Anderson, the town's first butcher. Oscar had arrived from Sweden, stopping first in Seattle and making his way to Seward, and finally to the settlement on Ship Creek. He was a pioneer here, being the 18th person to arrive. I guess they were marking him as they came in. (laughs) You're number 18. In his account, he wrote, Everyone talked about the new settlement starting across Cook Inlet from Nick. I had to find a way to cross over, which was no easy matter, as there was a lot of ice on the inlet and no one wanted to risk it. Finally, a 19-year-old youth who had a boat volunteered to row me across. Can you imagine it's a teenager who steps up? I got a boat. I'll take you. It was no pleasure trip. At one point, the boy fell in the water. Yikes. We pulled onto a large block of ice. I took out some dry clothes from my suitcase and we changed his clothes. After that, I had to finish rowing. Oscar Anderson lived in this house until 1974 when he died at the age of 91. Wow. So he was in that house for 60 years. And you actually got to see this house, but since it was at night, it was closed because it's now a museum. Correct. So you got to kind of look in the windows and stuff. The house has been restored to its 1915 appearance. 
Oscar's widow Elizabeth moved to Washington after selling the house, and she was thrilled when she heard stories that people believed the house was haunted. Oscar had loved this home, and she said he would never want to leave, and the paranormal activity proved that. The first people to report activity were a young couple who moved into the house right after Oscar died. They heard disembodied footsteps coming from upstairs. Later, they couldn't open the door to his old room. Eventually, they wedged it open enough to see that a chest had slid in front of the door, blocking it from opening. Adam wrote on TripAdvisor, I went there years ago. It's a nice little house. Some interesting old stuff. When I was taken upstairs, I shot a photo from one room into the other room. I did not see anything when I was there, but when I got my photo, there was an image of a man about the size of Oscar. Oh, my. Next, we have the Snow City Cafe. Snow City Cafe is located on 4th Avenue and opened in 1998. This is a breakfast, lunch, and brunch place. The Anchorage Ghost Tour kicks off from this spot. Rick Goodfellow, who founded the tour, says of this location, The short story is that a very prominent woman of her day, in 1976, was killed by a car bomb. She was a travel agent, and in those days, there was no Snow City. Her office was where Snow City is today. This woman now haunts the location, and according to Goodfellow, she is friendly. She likes to pull pranks during food prep and plays with turning off and on the water. Brianna Goldman was a front house supervisor at Snow City, and she had an experience with the female ghost. She said, There's so much daylight at that time of the year, but when I came in about 20 minutes early that day, I was just like, Yes, it's beautiful. I can get things done early. And then I heard someone laughing. I heard a cabinet close in the back by the bathroom, and I was just like, Is someone here? There were no other employees at the restaurant, and she was really creeped out. So this woman's name was Muriel Feel. I think it's P-F-E-I-L. And there was this car bomb that exploded in downtown Anchorage in 1976, and no one was ever charged for her murder, which might be why she's haunting this location. Could be. Lisbeth Meredith writes about this on her blog. In 1976, Muriel got into her car in downtown Anchorage, turned the key, and was blown to bits. Someone had planted a car bomb. At the time, Muriel was not much past 40 and had been through a rocky divorce and custody battle with her former husband, lawyer Neil McKay. McKay was later acquitted of murder charges. More than eight years later, when Muriel's brother fought for custody of his nephew and for control of Muriel's estate, he was executed on his way home from work. And the woman who writes this blog says, I became a domestic violence advocate in 1992, 16 years after Muriel's death. Time and time again, battered women I met with indicated that Muriel's death was used by their partners as a means to maintain control. Leave me, and you'll go down like Muriel did. Wow. I know of no other women in Anchorage killed by their partners in that exact fashion, but just the threat of a car bombing proved to be a powerful tool to keep women in abusive relationships. I think about Muriel's death and the murder of her brother with some regularity. I'm not the only one. Just this evening, a friend mentioned a Muriel conversation at a party she attended last week. So much time has passed, and we're still pondering how such a horrible thing could happen in our community. So, yeah, what a way to have a spouse take out another one. We hear all sorts of things, but I don't think I've ever heard of a car bomb before. Right. And it's terrible. I don't know all the facts, but apparently they didn't have enough evidence to get them. Now you can't get them anymore. Anyway, that really did happen. I mean, you hear somebody talk about it, and you're like, really? A car bomb in Anchorage? You wouldn't think. Right. Usually you think that's some kind of a domestic terrorist or something. And now a little break for a word about one of our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by HelloFresh. The holidays are upon us, and I have a great gift idea people can give themselves. Formaldehyde. Mort! New Chauville. No, Mort. HelloFresh makes meal planning easy. The holidays can be hectic, and HelloFresh helps to keep things simple and fresh. 
Recipes like balsamic and fig beef tenderloin or pecan crusted salmon make holiday meals feel special without the high cost of dining out or delivery. That sounds delicious. And Kelly, they also have us covered for any holiday special parties or things we might be doing. They have holiday cheese and charcuterie board and skinny dipped dark chocolate peppermint almonds. Oh my goodness, that sounds amazing. My mouth is watering. Don't forget dessert. Satisfy your sweet tooth with seasonal limited time goodies like ginger spiced cake truffles. Love it. And cherry cheesecake squirrel bars. If you want to take some of the stress out of your holiday season, go to HelloFresh.com slash Bump14 and use code Bump14 for up to 14 free meals and three free gifts. That's right. Go to HelloFresh.com slash Bump14 and use code Bump14 for up to 14 free meals and three free gifts. HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Then on to the Hotel Captain Cook. This is one of the stops that you guys took on the ghost tour. And I think this is usually the second stop that they hit. The hotel was built in 1964 by Alaskan Governor Walter J. Hickel. An earthquake had leveled much of Anchorage and Hickel saw this as an opportunity. The hotel originally had only one tower, but a second and third tower were added in the 1970s. This hotel has 546 rooms and is a member of Historic Hotels of America. Goodfellow believes that there's a spirit at this hotel that is very territorial, and that territory encompasses the ladies' restroom, of course. Sure does. I tell you, Kelly, it's always the ladies' restroom. I'll never understand why. As Goodfellow tells it, the operations manager told me why there's one stall that's always locked. It's because there was a suicide in there shortly after that tower, Tower 2, was opened. She gets into bad moods sometimes. Over the course of ghost tours, I've seen her go from very quiescent for months until she's very active, night after night after night. So maybe that means she doesn't do a lot for months. People have even passed out in the restroom near the stall. I didn't have any experiences like that, but I did go in and take some pictures. You did, and we'll have to see if we can share those up on Instagram. I'll see if I can find them. We did a bonus cast, and this was included in it for haunted bathrooms. So I'll have to see if I've still got them over there. So the story here goes that a woman was really upset about something and took a gun with her into the posh and elegantly decorated restroom. This was a pretty nice restroom, right? Oh, yes, it was. Very much so. And it's all black stalls when you go in there. She chose the last stall on the left. How fitting is that? It's like the last house on the left. (laughs) Right. (laughs) This stall is now permanently latched because it is reputed to be quite haunted. The female spirit usually appears as a woman in white. Not only has her apparition been seen in that bathroom and particularly in that stall, but there's a great sense of unease in that stall. Some women have become violently ill when in the restroom and others have fainted, as we mentioned earlier. The stall walls have been shaken violently and women have been touched, sometimes feeling as though something is grabbing their ankles. Oh, no, not when I'm going to the bathroom. (laughs) Don't be grabbing my ankles. I took my camera and held it over the top of the stall and tried to take photographs, but I didn't catch anything. 
Well, the thing that's crazy about this is that it really is latched. I mean, this isn't just some kind of a legend. They right. really do have that last stall latched and they don't let people go in there. When it comes to a ladies' restroom, you usually want to have all hands on deck when it comes to the stalls <laughs> because we always have long lines. Right. So to take one out, there's got to be something going on. And, and it's enough that it's not just people coming and saying, I felt kind of weird when I was in there. It's like people are feeling endangered and that's why you're keeping them out of there. You know, after you've had one too many violent experiences, I don't blame the management for deciding that they're going to keep that off limits. And I think it's rather cool that they let the ghost tours go in there and take your pictures. And yeah, definitely. The poor guys, of course, don't get to experience it, but I guess you can show them your camera roll. <laughs> yeah, no, they didn't get to go in. What's interesting, though, is that you are what I consider to be sensitive and you didn't feel weird when you were in there. I didn't, but I wasn't quite as in tune at that time. I was more concerned about keeping the boys in line because they were kind of young. Oh, that's <laughs> so, true. <laughs> I was focused on other things at that point. And you were with a spouse who wasn't really digging ghost tours no, and things. No, so he definitely like, was not. <laughs> I kind of forced the situation, so. Exactly. Next, we have the Historic Anchorage Hotel. This hotel was built in 1916 at the corner of 3rd Avenue and E Street, so it's over 100 years old. This was a posh place with meals served on fine china with beautiful linens and real silver utensils. By 1936, the hotel needed to expand to accommodate all the tourists traveling to the city of Anchorage. The Anchorage Hotel Annex was built at that time across the alleyway on 3rd Avenue. To connect the two buildings, a sky bridge was constructed. Celebrities and dignitaries staying here included Wiley Post, Mountain Man Bob Marshall, artist Sidney Lawrence, who actually lived at the hotel and had his studio in the lobby, and Will Rogers. The boom time dissipated over time and the original structure was sold and raised. The annex building still operated as a hotel, but over time it fell into disrepair and changed names frequently. New life was breathed into it in 1989 when it fell under new ownership. Extensive renovations were done and it reopened as the historic Anchorage Hotel. Now, I had never heard of this mountain man, Bob Marshall, but I was like, well, clearly they think that he's some kind of a celebrity. So I looked him up and he was an American forester, writer and wilderness activist. And he founded the Wilderness Society in the United States in 1935. Very cool. He was a scientist with a Ph.D. in plant physiology, and he became independently wealthy after the death of his father. So it gave him time to be able to do all this exploration in the forest and stuff. He held two significant public appointed posts. He was chief of forestry in the Bureau of Indian Affairs from 1933 to 1937 and head of recreation management in the Forest Service from 1937 to 1939, which were during President Franklin D. Roosevelt's administration. And he was one of those who put forward a lot of regulations to help preserve large areas of roadless land and put them under federal management, which is good. Otherwise, I think sometimes we wouldn't have some of these forested areas as we've seen just where we live. We're starting to lose a lot of our conservation areas around us. I'm so happy we have a state park right across the highway because that's not going anywhere. Yeah, exactly. Many years after his death, some of those areas were permanently protected from development, exploitation, and mechanization with the passage of the Wilderness Act of 1964. Very good. And the crazy thing about this guy is that he died at the age of 38 from apparent heart failure. He was on a midnight train from Washington, D.C. to New York City in 1939 and just had this heart attack. Very How sad. sad. Sounded like he did a lot of really wonderful things in his lifetime. Yeah, and it shocked a lot of people because not only was he only 38, but he did a lot of physical activity. So I'm thinking he probably had something, you know, birth. Congenital birth, or something. Yeah. yeah. 
And then as I'm reading a little bit further here, Kelly, it's saying that he was interred at Salem Field Cemetery, which is a Jewish burial ground in Brooklyn, New York. He's beside his parents and his sister, Ruth, who had died of congestive heart failure at age 38 in 1936. Oh, my goodness. So apparently they had some bad hearts in that family. Yeah. Can you imagine both the children dying in their 30s from heart stuff? No. The hotel embraces its reputation of being haunted. Ghost stories have been told about the hotel for years. Pictures are said to come off the walls and fly across the rooms. The curtains seem to move on their own. One of the ghosts here is believed to be Anchorage's first chief of police, Jack Sturgis. Just outside the hotel, he was found shot in the back by his own gun. This happened on February 20th, 1921. He never got justice and perhaps is why he remains. There are other spirits here and the hotel even keeps a log to track guests' experiences. So they never figured out who shot him? Wow. I mean, he was shot in the back by his own gun. So they got the gun away from him. Right. And I remember this story when I was on the tour. So the story behind Jack Sturgis, whose real name was actually John, is that he was the only officer initially hired. And that was at the beginning of 1921. And just weeks later, he was dead from a gunshot wound. So he just had barely become their police chief. Wow. He was on patrol February 20th, 1921. It was at night and around 9 p.m. He passed the store of a local butcher the last person to see him alive. At 9.15 p.m., Sturgis was found shot with his own gun in the back alley in a stairwell of the hotel, and the revolver lay in the snow nearby. It was found by a night watchman who, failing to initially recognize Sturgis, ran to get the city's lone police officer. Oh, no. That's him on the ground. Speculation immediately began to possible scenarios in which the murder took place. Perhaps it had happened when Sturgis had attempted to make an arrest, one theory claimed. Another thought that revenge was a motive. Whatever the case, the mystery continues to generate interest among local paranormal groups who seek an answer. So I guess when they're doing the ghost investigations, they're asking him, can you tell us who shot you? He may not know since he was shot in the back. I don't know if he was running from whoever it was. And the other interesting thing is the gun held two empty cartridges, but witnesses heard only one shot and he was only hit with one bullet. So I wonder if he hit someone. Well, no, but they didn't hear it. No. So that's just weird, too, because they're two empty cartridges. It had to have been shot at some point, so maybe people didn't hear one of the shots. There were no signs of a struggle either. So weird. Yeah, and that nobody had taken anything from him either, so it wasn't like a, a robbery or anything. So don't know what happened to him, but I can see why he might be sticking around. Our lady in white is seen here, and she is, of course, in a wedding dress. The story here is that she was set to wed in the 1920s, but her fiancé jilted her the day of the wedding. Apparently, he struck it rich in the gold fields and took off. He's like, oh, I'm rich. I don't need you anymore, I guess. Lovely. You still need somebody to cook you dinner. Come on. She hanged herself in her wedding dress and is now said to walk the hallways. The front desk has often gotten complaints about children running around in the hallways making a bunch of noise. Every time the staff has gone to find the kids, they find none. They usually find that no one is registered with any children with them either. Another child ghost has been reported hiding in a closet in 2011. The guests claim they opened the closet door and the child smiled at them and then disappeared. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty... That's creepy, but yeah. it's funny. <laughs> I mean, you open it up and you're like, uh, are you lost? And then all of a sudden they're gone. The children could be connected to an outbreak of influenza in 1938 that killed a large group of children. They died in a building that had been nearby, not here at the actual hotel. Some people think they might have played at the hotel and that's why they returned there. Because it's a nice warm place to run around in the hallways screaming. <laughs> screaming. Okay. One-time hotel manager Terry Russi was working the front desk when she witnessed a shadowy figure in a white dress reflecting in a mirror that was in front of her. She spun around to see what had just walked behind her, and there was nothing but a picture behind her. 
but she knew she saw a figure pass behind her. She also had a shared experience with a guest that was reported in the Anchorage Daily News in 2004. Later on in the week, a boyfriend of an employee passed the time with a self-guided tutorial on how to tie a tie. He was seated in a chair next to the narrow lobby fireplace with Russie again behind the front desk. As he practiced, a framed picture of notable Alaskan artist Sidney Lawrence spontaneously catapulted itself from the mantle across the room, shattering a glass coffee table on impact. That'll get your attention. Yeah, no kidding. Russie was stunned. Assuming it was an earthquake, she looked around to see what else was shaking. The chandelier was still. The room was quiet. The man turned to her, his untied tie hanging from his neck and casually suggested, maybe it's your ghost? <laughs> Alrighty then. I just love how he just turns around and casually goes, huh, I wonder if that was the ghost. It, as if this happens every day around him. Oh, that picture flew across the room and just busted the coffee table. Well, he could just be like us and... <laughs> make that assumption i think i was still would have like jumped up like what in the world that's true another male ghost likes to latch on to certain guests and then follows them around throughout their stay Alrighty, i don't know how they know that but <laughs> got a little companion there anchorage has a long history much of which is filled with legend it's not surprising that the city has places connected to ghost stories are these places in anchorage haunted that, that is for you to, to decide, decide. Well, as I said, I had two chances to get there, but bummer, not going to happen. Well, it might eventually. We'll see. We'll see. If we do, I definitely want to make sure we go on the ghost tour because that sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, I'm really happy that he's still conducting them. Yeah. We'd love to have you guys check out our website at historyghostbump.com. And if you want to send us some feedback, you can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. We heard from Deborah, and she let us know that she's listening to our Greenfield Village Museum episode, and she worked there when she was in high school as well. Very cool. And I guess her daughter is a freshman in high school this year and started school right near there. Sarah wrote us and said, Hi, Diane and Kelly. I wanted to share an interesting conversation I had with my boyfriend's mom this past weekend. My boyfriend's family is Catholic, and his mom at one point wanted to become a nun. There was an episode of Ghost Hunters on TV, and my boyfriend's sister-in-law asked if his mom believed in ghosts. She said, yes, she absolutely believes that people can cross over to come back to help people. She proceeded to tell the story of a priest who had died and came back to tell others where he had left the church collection in a hidden desk drawer. Oh, wow. I love the idea of people who love us being able to cross over to help and guide us. Absolutely. Yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. They're probably like, where'd the money go, father? (laughs) (laughs) He came back to tell him. Nick McGurr, who joined us on the investigation we did at the St. Augustine Lighthouse, Kelly? actually has his own podcast called Stories in the Cemetery, and episode 40 features the St. Augustine Lighthouse investigation that we did there. Very so cool. You can get things from his side of the stuff and what he got on his equipment. So it'll be a nice little companion piece to our bonus episode that we did. Absolutely. And I believe you can get that anywhere you can get podcasts. We want to thank you guys for tuning into this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by... Our executive producers. Join me in the cemetery by becoming an executive producer. You can join on Patreon or PayPal. Check out the Support the Show tab on the website for more information.
Darkness cloaks the land for much of the year, and thick fi- fine? Hmm. Thick fine forests. <laughs> he was one of the last recognized chiefs of Uffer. Uffer? 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 Uffer Cook? The Uffer Cook Inlet. <laughs> the legend of Lumiak tells the story of a young boy who was a boot. A boost? He was a boost. He was a boost. <laughs> he was very <laughs> haunted while he was being beaten. <laughs> so my dad used to tickle me so bad to the point where I couldn't breathe. So I'd have to pretend like I passed gas so that he would <laughs> stop and leave me alone. <laughs> he tossed me across the room like onto the couch or something. <laughs> like what would you do? Make a pretend farting noise? or No, I would just go, oh, excuse me. <laughs> I was all embarrassed and they'd be like, ah, I think he pretty quickly figured out that I was faking it, but he would literally do it to the point where I could not breathe. And my mom would be saying, let her go. (laughs) I was very tomboyish. So it was like rough and tumble time. Yeah. Yeah. I used to wrestle with my dad too. So eventually they wedged it open enough. Eventually they wedged it open enough to see that a... I just can't say this. Eventually, they wedged it open enough to see that a chest had slid in, had slid in front of the door. (laughs) I wrote it. Why can't I read it? I don't know. And then I heard someone laughing. I heard a gap, gabbing it. (laughs) Speculation immediately. Now I can't talk. Speculation? Yes. 